0: can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, your host for the Future of Higher Education podcast on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to be here today with Wasif Rizvi, the founder and president of the Habib University in Karachi, Pakistan, the first liberal arts university in Pakistan, the world's fifth largest country. Uh, Professor Rizvi, it's so great to have you here. Uh,
1: very, very glad to be with you.
0: Could, could you start by telling folks a little bit about your, your own background, where you grew up and your your, your own
1: educational path? Uh, I grew up in uh, a small city, uh, very north of Karachi. Um, it's actually roughly in the middle of Pakistan. It's called Jihlum. Uh The city is on Jehlum River, uh, which is an ancient river, supposedly. And, and Alexander had one of his famous battles uh, there on that river. And actually, his famous horse, Wasopheles, was buried there. And I think that perhaps triggered the founding of the city where I was born and and, and grew up. Um, and then, uh, as luck would have it, I at that time, uh, uh, it was um, common for people to go and work in the Middle East. It still is. Um, and my father was uh, posted in Saudi Arabia. And I was uh, just spending some time with him after my high school and uh, that's when i got introduced to this little college entrance exam called sat mm-hmm. and 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 i i took it i didn't have a, a lot of thought or planning behind it and much to my surprise and perhaps my late father's surprise i did pretty well and and then i i ended up uh in a place that you're familiar as well, which is Harvard University, uh, in, and, and I graduated out in class of 91. Uh, I think I, I, I arrived just uh, maybe a couple of years after you had left. Great. And And what did you study at Harvard? So I studied, I majored in uh, philosophy and international relations. Um, so that's, uh, that was my degree. Um, I graduated dutifully, like a good South Asian boy, uh, with honors. Uh, we, we had to be uh, uh, trying at least and make an attempt to be near the top of the class, um, which was uh, futile in my case. But nevertheless, um, and then I um, I hung about in the U.S. and then I I got into a twin graduate program, master's programs, um, both at the ed school at Harvard, as well as the Kennedy school. Um, and, and I finished uh, a policy degree from Kennedy school and my education degree from ed school, um, somewhere in the mid nineties. And then I was picked for this program at UNESCO, uh, their young professional program. And, and I was, um, I was working in France, uh, working on higher ed. They have a specialized higher education group, uh, which was looking at future of higher education. And during that time, I, um, I got an opportunity to come back to Pakistan uh, because I had recently lost a parent at the time. So that was something that I wanted to do. And I came in, back into Pakistan somewhere in the early 2000s and started to work for Aga Khan Development Network, uh, which is a vast network, philanthropic network led by um, uh, Prince Karim Aga Khan, um, and there, because there is a sizable number of Ismaili community in Pakistan, so they have an extensive um, social services, uh, which include education, uh, health, and so on. And On the education side, at that time they were planning on expanding uh, their uh, medical school, which is in Karachi. And since uh, His Highness the Khan himself is a Harvard alum, he wanted to call it FAS, Faculty of Arts and Science. Um, And that was an exciting project. I I thought that I can contribute to it. Um, So that project sort of ran into its own snags, and. I was wondering um, what I should do because I was not too confident that that project was going to take off. And at that time, as luck would have it, uh, I was introduced to this um, very philanthropic-minded but and a wealthy family uh, business uh, known as Habibs. And at that time, uh, you know, when when I was introduced to them, uh, they they had a so they have an interesting family constitution. So, as a rule, they have to set aside twenty percent of their profits um, for philanthropy um, before the family gets paid. So wow. that was that was codified by the the grand patriarch of the family, and they never changed it. And because they were not starting many new projects, so that amount was accruing, and it had become sizable enough that they thought they can start an, an, an institution or at least endow. Uh, the big the the founding of one and that's when I started to work on the project um, I I, uh, I told them that look no one is uh, really trained to think up of a, a university a new university so I need to first figure it out uh, give me some time and the little trick that I played on them was and uh, that I was going to do it for free um, which is kind of disorienting for people uh, sometimes right but it It gave me the freedom to imagine the project the way I wanted to. And when I presented it to them, um, to to their credit, they liked it. And their own condition was that if they like it, then I will have to lead it. Uh, So that's when we formally started the project somewhere in 2010, um, convened a board and started planning, um, started building in 2012. Great.
0: Um, I obviously want to ask you a lot more about the, those early days of, of the university, but I'm curious, in that career journey you had, at what point did you think you might yourself want to be a university president? Was that part of why you chose the ed degree at Harvard, or did that come from the work at UNESCO, or w- when in the journey?
1: B- both, I think. Uh, mostly a, a deeper insight into academia when I was working for UNESCO, because I thought that the way academy is shaped and now so heavily tilted towards being so resource extensive, there isn't a sensible model for um, less resourced countries like Pakistan to emulate, Um, because it had basically become um, a very inward-looking enterprise, um, it requires a massive research ecosystem, which uh, uh, out of U.S. and maybe EU, it's almost impossible to for any country to support. Um, it's not really, it never looked, uh, at least in the last 30 years, did not look at uh, teaching and innovative teaching as uh, with any kind of intellectual credential. Um, and it was sort of favored so heavily towards uh, publication, uh, the entire ecosystem of it, whether it's accreditation or promotion and so on, uh, that I thought that this is just not possible for for any country like Pakistan or or Indonesia or or Brazil, anybody to sustain. Um, uh, so I think I you know as always you can look back and 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 somehow. Um, uh, comfort yourself that you were thinking clearly, but you <laughs> <don't>. <laughs> not, not necessarily the case, right? <laughs> not necessarily the case. But I, if yeah. I were to look back, I think those were some of the analyses that I was doing, and I think they they contributed to the idea that maybe I should um, give it a shot myself because, short of leading it, I don't think that adds and and that and that really got um, that. Uh, understanding got solidified when I was working at Aga Khan because I was not leading the project. And, and if I was just advising it, uh, because there were so many divergent views that uh, I thought that a coherent idea is not going to come out of it. So I think uh, perhaps that these three episodes, training at Harvard, um, doing analysis that um, at UNESCO and then actually trying to do something. I think these three things perhaps combine for- uh, All, all steps along the way. Yes. yes.
0: So. so- so can you share a little more, I, I, I saw in some of your writings and, and, and other interviews you've given about the, the key issues, the problems that you saw? You've mentioned the challenge of, you know, the R1 research model university isn't really a fit for much of the world in terms of providing a really mass education. So what were the issues that you saw and the Habibs saw that, that you wanted to tackle or address with the creation of this new universe?
1: So uh, this is basically, and uh, we've been consistent in sort of highlighting those for last many years, that I thought that uh, a a lot of very complex things, I, I condensed it into that if we were to solve three problems, the university is demonstrably contributing towards providing some prototype of solution for the three main problems then I think we have a significant institution. And the three main problems being number one was the intellectual experience. Now, not only universities were not emulating R1, in places like Pakistan and India, and in many other places, they were just reduced to being glorified trade schools. Um, this was the model, and this was you know the model coming out of uh, Far East uh, Asia, of course, India, the pressure on Pakistan or any other country was immense, that the real higher education is just STEM and not only, not even STEM, it's just the application of STEM, right? So you do engineering and you do medicine and and uh, this was basically the whole gist of the national policy for higher education. And as a result, uh, many decades on, and that policy was formally adopted in the 60s, we, we had you know, a a spectrum of mediocre to very bad STEM institutions. And when private universities came along, just by the sort of sheer inertia of of, um, state not doing much, the private universities were not really thought through, perhaps not anywhere in the world. And that's another conversation I want to have today. Um, they didn't change much. They were doing exactly the same thing. So in Pakistan, the, for instance, the first private university was a medical school. The second was a business school. The third was a computer science institute. Um, so the intellectual experience in such a vast and complex society um, in, like Pakistan was completely non-existent. And in Pakistan, we were seeing a real fallout of that uh, because... In the early 2000s, you know, we were going through all sorts of extreme shocks and universities had no idea a, how to be part of any conversation and more ominously to, to provide any kind of sense to their own audience who are their students. And as a result, I think uh, one of the studies that really influenced me well, came out in the mid 2000s which was provocatively titled that why engineers make good terrorists. Um, and, and this was a very well done economic study uh, by a Mexican and an Italian economic uh, Gambetta, and I'm forgetting the, the other name. And they had tracked a number of, of um, uh, rank and file leadership people in Al-Qaeda at that time and Taliban and so on. Uh, with one with two things in common, one was, uh, they were all very university educated. Um, so they had all gone to, uh, you know, postgraduate training of some. And the other thing com- in common with, in them was, um, that they were all professionally educated. They were either doctors or engineers or, or accountants and so on. And this last thing that was in common in them, that none of them had any humanities training. Right. So um, so in Pakistan the whole idea of inspiring liberal arts was just not an abstraction. It had become uh, an existentialist need uh, to, to a large extent. So the intellectual experience was a, is a complex problem that I, I thought that we should provide a sensible solution to. And that obviously requires high quality faculty and a lot of imagination and how do we sort of create the right kind of liberal arts experience and, and inspiration? Within that, uh, there were two or three things we thought we must focus on, which was a question of historical moment and identity. And the second was, um, you know, what and within that, what was addressed was uh, the question of what does it mean to be part of a nation, uh, Pakistan being a new nation, obviously. And the last one was uh, religion. So we saw that any kind of liberal arts and humanities-based work that we will do, well, we, we call it reparative epistemology that if if our our students don't have an independent view of the world from their own perspective uh, and insight of reality of arts of what of history of what's happening to them then um, i don't think civilizationally we can sustain ourselves right uh, so that's the other problem by not doing it i don't think that any kind of right liberal arts or humanities perspective has emerged because from any other part of the world it is so heavily dominated by 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 western academia so this was largely the intellectual challenge that we thought we should be providing solution to and that's a work in progress it's ongoing and so on but the second problem was bigger than the first one that who are we giving this <laughs> that's a pretty big one <laughs> <laughs> yeah so second problem was that who are we giving this intellectual experience to so this this brings in the badly thought-out private education model, which is ubiquitous all over the world. Because you, you United States lucked out. It actually really, I think, by almost a historical accident, created a model of institutional model of higher education that did not, doesn't exist anywhere in the world. Uh, it had a university 140 years before there was a country. And then it triggered few other institutions, right? So, you and your children, I was looking at your profile. So, you have cornered all the Ivies and Oxford for good measure. <laughs> so, so, but remember, they, they came along way before there was a country. Uh, so, so, a different model evolved uh, a community owned center of tertiary excellence of the sort, uh, which is not available anywhere in the world. Right. So higher education is the subject of state or kings or nobles or so on. So this model deeply influenced U.S. higher education, even when public universities came. So there's this great deal of participation of wider community in supporting the university and so on. That didn't, doesn't exist anywhere in the world. Right. So when private universities started in Pakistan, and in Pakistan, they started out of a martial law decree because constitutionally it wasn't possible to have a private university. So they started in the mid-'80s. They had no way to sustain themselves except to charge students. And if you're charging the aforementioned intellectual experience cost to the students, then you are disenfranchising 99.9% possible students in Pakistan because the cost of student uh, cost of that education in Pakistan is anywhere between 7,000 to let's say $15,000 a year. And only 0.01% people in Pakistan can pay that kind of money. So the whole claim of richness of educate, of intellectual experience stands a little vacuous if it's only given to that tiny little sliver. So, so we said that look we're going to be the first university outside of the US which is not tuition dependent which is obviously was very made our sponsors very happy <laughs> no, it, no it did not <laughs> uh, so so we said that, look we can't uh, we have to make it completely tuition independent and we'll figure out what to do and that leads to the third problem that we're solving which is to reshape philanthropy so Pakistanis are very charitable. They like to sort of help themselves. But higher education was not the 20th thing that they thought of. So, so somebody had to share this story with them. And we have been very, very, very emphatically received so far. So so we have a larger community. We don't recover twenty, maybe 20, 25% from students, even less. So there's a massive discount that allows us to admit students from every background. And especially we have a affirmative action of the sort in Pakistan, the way universities played that game, that there is a local higher educa- there's a local high school exam, which is very cheap, state run. And then there's a private high school exam, which is Cambridge exam. So if you're making a guess that which student is going to be able to pay our fee, you admit student from the ladder. So, but they, they account for about 6% of Pakistani high school. 94% come from local. Um, so when we looked at some of the enrollments of private universities, this equation was more than reversed. So almost all of their enrollment would come from that 6%. Um, so what we said, Look, no, that's not going to happen. So we'll take at least 40% from local examination and they will be fully funded. So their biggest insecurity will be taken care of right up front that if you're good enough, you get in, you're fully funded. You're 100% scholarship. We, we named it a nice program, TOPS program. And then that encouraged so many other students to apply that this university is for real. Once we apply, we get in, we don't have to worry about, even if we, and during COVID time, especially many fell into financial hardships, but that's our, because we're not that dependent on them. So we can continue to expand their, that support. That's not critical to our operational existence. Uh, whether we recover 20% or not recover it, that's not going to, to shut the university down. So, in a way, contrary to common belief, that actually makes the institution more stable uh, than, than a fee dependent institution, especially in a time like COVID. We discovered that.
0: Well, I'd like to dig in more into that financial model and how you make it work, but just a a couple of points of clarification for U.S. listeners. So you were drawing the distinction between the U.S. and the rest of the world and referring to private education. So my understanding is Pakistan is similar to what you see in India or, or other parts of South Asia in that the private universities operate much like we would describe as the private for-profit sector in the US although they are most of them are actually nonprofits technically right but oh. but because they are entirely fee dependent without an endowment they basically serve only those students who can afford to pay and the quality of what they do may not be as high as you would like to see where the US has been really distinctive is in having this large private nonprofit sector sector that's mission driven that is really focused on excellence in 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 all of what
1: they do I, is that correct it's absolutely accurate that's that's exactly what it is and and i said that us has a 400 year head start right on, on the world to be able to do it
0: yeah and then in terms of your model you are actually trying to replicate what the the most selective institutions in the us do in the sense that you're not tuition free you're not it's not that you're not charging but you don't want economic means to be a barrier to attending so that other 60% who come they they will pay some fees and cover at least some of the costs of their education but for those who are high need but talented you want to make it free for them to come or or at least not to to have only what they their family could afford to pay
1: That's exactly true. So we do have a a completely open merit scholarship as well, which anybody can win. And and about 90 percent of our students then end up getting some form of support. Um, So so the full paying students are typically less than 10 percent.
0: So I'd like to go back to that planning phase. So as you described it, there were sort of two phases there. There was a, a period, and I'm curious how long that was, where you said, "I'll volunteer, I'll I'll scope out what this looks like for you," and then they signed on in 2010, and then you entered the 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 more intensive planning phase of figuring out how how you were going to build and open this university. Can you describe? What what you did, how long that first period was, and and what you did in those two phases, to come up with with the distinctive vision for Habib Universe.
1: So the 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 first period lasted for maybe a year, um, and I think the part of it was that I I wanted to make a presentation to all the decision makers, and that took a few months to to get sorted. Uh, it was roughly the same. Um, description that I, I just highlighted briefly, that these are the problems to solve. If if we were to create a great university which is uh, worthy of carrying the Habib legacy, we should be known as the university that influenced higher education as a sector in Pakistan greatly by, by providing, by sort of intersecting both the intellectual mission as well as the institutional and financial and economics of it. Uh, which which was the first phase. And once they agreed to that, and they said that, look, the the third problem remains a challenge that you have to demonstrably show that people will support it. Um, So because while Habibs can commit to underwrite the deficit for some period of time, but because it's an important problem to solve, as well as it's good for the health of the university, that we are more accountable to larger community. Um, So that was the first phase. And then the second phase started, um, which was somewhere in 2010, when I put together uh, seven, I said, there are seven things we need to do. And on the other end of those seven things, we will have the start of a university. And those seven things were that we have to figure out the academic programs and, and the scholarly agenda within the economic programs. The second thing we have to figure out, where are we going to get the faculty? And what are we going to give them as an incentive? The third thing we have to figure out, how will we convince students who have been battered by these 50 years of, of, of uh, vocational education? So, so the advocacy and where are we going to get, find those students? And the fourth thing will be that who are going to be our partners and supporters in this journey globally? And almost all of them will be in the US. So we will have to have partnership and networking. The fifth thing was that we have to have a very robust governance and institutional model so we don't repeat the mistakes that we have seen many other institutions making, especially when it is such a sponsor dominated uh, start. So we want to have the right governance and we will have academics uh, upfront in the governance and especially the academics that who have some experience of starting or or working in in an institution that that was relatively new. Because the answer to this question that how do you create a great university is not that simple because all the great ones are very old and nobody really remembers. so 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 the new university will be so we need a right kind of insight and the sixth thing was the building of the campus the design of it and the building of it and the last thing was mobilizing the community and giving some some projection of sustainability so these were the seven we, they they then got known fondly as the seven wasef seven planning areas And then when we assembled the board, we we fast-tracked the governance and institutional. So the board, for the first time, met in August of 2010. And we agreed that basically the board meeting will just be a review of how are we doing against these seven things. And I think we, we, we accomplished them with reasonable success to start a university just four years after our first board meeting. Build it and then start it.
0: Great. Um, I'd like to ask you about uh, each, each of those seven in, in some detail, but I w- wondered, I believe that part of what you did in the exploration of those seven was a pretty extensive study tour of other institutions um, in the U.S. around the world. And I, I'm wondering if you could speak to, as, as you did that, which of the models, which of the things you saw were, were most influential in your thinking for, for what you felt would work at, in Pakistan? Habib
1: so so there were two kinds right so one was um, the nature of content that you know and there and it it didn't really I won't specify an institution but there were many individuals who were doing very interesting content uh, around what liberal arts and 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 these humanities for a place like Pakistan should look like Um, So, so, so one part of this network was meeting with with those individuals and forming an advisory group, especially for the most important feature of our, our uh, curriculum, which is our liberal core. Um, Many of them were doing what had tenured position in some of the best universities, so they wouldn't have come to join Habib University. But I think just having them as an advisor was a, was very, um, had carried a lot of weight. But institutionally, I particularly looked at um, two institutions, um, Harvey Mudd College and Olin College of Engineering. Both are engineering, but they both shared a very interesting problem a few decades apart. That they, uh, Harvey Mudd is, uh, and both were geographical problems. So Harvey Mudd is not far from Caltech. And... Poland College of Engineering is not far from MIT. So both of them wisely thought that this is not the game that they can play. They can't have these multi-billion dollar lab and massive research and, and Pentagon and JPL and all of that. Uh, so, so they, in order to become significant institutions, they shifted towards really inspiring high quality teaching. And how to create a student-centered institution, uh, which is as good in terms of academic experience, but it is about undergraduate students. And both of them achieved similar degree of success in attracting the students who had a full scholarship admission at Caltech or MIT, respectively. But they left those admissions and and, and joined these because they thought that this is a better ground, better ecosystem for them to cultivate themselves. And that was an emulatable model because it was not from a resource point of view or history point of view was not frightening because Olin is a very recent institution and it is already ranked uh, as number one or two uh, as an undergraduate engineering program. Harvey Mudd is slightly older, but still is a 1950s or 60s institution. So, can so I want, can I ask yeah.
0: you about those two as models? Because as as you know, I had a chance to to work in the Claremont Colleges, so I know Harvey Mudd very well, and Rick Miller was one of the first guests on the podcast, and so huge fan of the Olin model. But but one of the advantages they both have that I believe you do not have, which I would have thought would be challenging, is they both nested within shared proximity and classes of great liberal arts institutions. So Olin had Wellesley and Babson. Uh, Harvey Mudd had the other four undergraduate colleges in the Claremont Consortium. You didn't have other liberal arts institutions to co-locate with to help you with the liberal arts side. They're obviously outstanding on science and engineering. But I'm curious, those two models, given that that key element you didn't have for building Habib.
1: So that's why we have a much very extensive school of arts, humanities, and social sciences. So we brought the magic of those proximity colleges right on our campus. So, and those, and we're the only university in Pakistan, now few are trying to, to copy, which celebrates humanities and liberal arts as much even more than the STEM. That's our more prominent school. So we have two schools. School of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences, and School of Science and Engineering. I did not look at them as content. I looked at them as the right focus. And what were they trying to distinguish themselves from? And they were clearly distinguishing themselves from these behemoths, which are in the neighborhood. And if world was my behemoth, that how do I distinguish abib University I can't possibly compete with, you know, a Harvard or, or even great liberal arts colleges who have uh, buckled under the pressure of wanting to do the scholarship and have reduced, uh, let's say, focus on teaching greatly uh, without naming anyone. Um, but these two institutions didn't do that. I think the joy that I saw in their faculty in, in seeing the inspiration and innovation among their students and the kind of faculty culture that they had was even more unique than some of the pure liberal arts colleges. Right.
0: I'm curious, did you look at all, because what would have seemed to me one natural model to look at, there, there are the American universities of Cairo, Paris, Rome, the network of them, where they're liberal arts institutions in countries like Pakistan which didn't have a history of that did you did you look at visit them and did you make any conscious decisions we we want to emulate this or we want to differentiate on this
1: so i did and uh, so there were two challenges with that right so so a they they became over time very exclusive and elitist institutions in their respective countries and for and Again, this really maddening hierarchy that you would ask uh, anyone in, in, in Egypt or in Lebanon when it was sane to go to those countries. Um, that, oh, you know, these are rich kids and they have the luxury of, 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 of doing this. And the most sensible, pragmatic thing for us to do is to go to our engineering schools and, and business schools and so on. Um, so that was one the other was that I don't think that the teaching centeredness there was as as robust as as I saw in uh, in the places that I have mentioned because I, I do believe that there is a great joy and scholarship to be rediscovered in in inspiring teaching and 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 um, creating a great course Um which should be viewed as an as an intellectual objective as well as an intellectual product as a paper would be viewed as or a publication would be viewed as. And I, I saw that the undergraduate involvement in actually doing sensible scholarly work more prominently in, in these places that I mentioned, not so much in these regional universities because they were just, to me, a watered-down model of wanting to be Known as the Yale of of Middle East or or or, or something like that, um, so that's why I thought I more more differentiated myself from it and less to learn from them.
0: Can can you talk about a little more about the academic model? You obviously like the number seven because it features, I think, in your your academic core uh, uh, of how you <laughs> approach the liberal arts. But but could you also talk about what what are the, what are the distinctive elements that you see in in how you're approaching liberal arts
1: education? So so um, we we call it the CPAC model. Uh, you know CPEC with an E, is a common term in Pakistan these days, which is China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. So we did a play on that, and we we, we have our own CPACs, uh, which is a, with an A. It's content, pedagogy, assessment, and community. So uh, so that's true for all courses. So we'd like to see that there's a thought-out aspect to all of these four dimensions. And the last one is most interesting, that if the if the experience has inspired students to come together as a community, which is not captured in formal assessment, mm-hmm. right? In On the content side, overall, the cross-cutting thing is you saw the seven forms of thought. Um, seven forms of thought and action, we call it. So uh, it starts with historical and social thought. Every student is required to do two courses of that. Then there's philosophical thought, again, two courses. Then it's language and expression, again, two. Then there's creative practice, which really helps us on the pedagogy side because we are uh, very immersed in design thinking framework. We have a very good partnership, of course, with Claremont where they have a good center now and with Stanford University with their d-school. So the creative, thing, the creative practice comes it really inspires that. Uh, then we have um, uh, scientific method and inquiry, uh, formal reasoning, and quantitative reasoning. So, so students are required to do 11 courses in these seven forms of thought and action. About eight of these courses are fixed. In the three, there is an elective choice, which is within that, right? So um, there, the course has to be specially curated for it to be part of the liberal core. And those eight courses form a great deal of collective experience, shared experience among students. So if you asked uh, a computer scientist or an or electrical engineer trained out of Habib University that what was the most distinguishing feature of your education? I'll be surprised, very rarely you will hear something, although they get very fascinating exposure into their own discipline, but it's invariably what we did in the core. How we formed the view of the world or reformed the view of the world and how we went through many existentialist crises, how we had to unlearn so many things. That really, even for the STEM side, it gave them very interesting ideas regarding what, acquiring that knowledge means to them. Um, On the arts, humanities, and social science side, we have a comparative humanities program, which is a major, which, uh, which deepens some of the things that are sparked within the liberal core. Then we have a social development and policy program. So we think that our students need to engage with the question of national interest and development and so on. And then we have communication and design program because we feel, and that program also inspires, influences a lot of um, other programs on the universe because we, we are living in this very weird era of um, this avalanche of images and, and sounds and, and, and data. Yeah. And if, if, if there's no intellectual modulation of that, then it's, it's just as a pretty toxic distraction more than anything else. So these programs have been carefully picked. As you can notice that most of them are applied because we're very conscious of the fact that we're admitting students from very modest backgrounds. And they would like to have substantial platform to be able to get a job and not maybe go to any kind of graduate school ever. So so that particular aspect That, again, distinguishes us a bit from some of the old regional universities because we want to respect that aspiration among our students as well. So these are the academic, uh, this is a brief academic picture.
0: Yeah. And and are you teaching in Arabic
1: or English or both? So Urdu is the language in Pakistan. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there is a, a mandatory requirement in Urdu that they have to be very proficient by the time they leave, and they do it via very sophisticated literature of Urdu. It's just not Urdu for for speaking, uh, but the mo- most of the instruction is in English. Okay. Yeah. And so, and
0: that that relates to the next question, which which is is around the faculty. So, so where did you find the founding faculty? How many? were in Pakistan already? How many came in from outside?
1: So st- the STEM folks, we found few of them in Pakistan because that's what Pakistan has been doing for the last 50 years. Uh, but most of the liberal arts, almost all of them, we had to find uh, out outside of Pakistan. And many of them were Pakistanis who thought that their interest has no real, real place in Pakistan to be accommodated. Uh, at a university level, so but there were there there is a number of Americans who who have come and many some have left, but but they, we are very thankful to American Academy and the softness of the job market <laughs> 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 for us to be able to continue to recruit from there, especially in the humanities. <laughs> and and what what does the mix
0: of students look like by major? Where where are folk where are students concentrating?
1: So um, the older four programs um, are almost evenly divided, with a little bit more favored in on the STEM side to computer science now. And now there's a craziness after COVID. Everybody feels that, you know, this may be the answer to all humanities problems. And Elon Musk is not are not helping. <laughs> so, um, so let's say about 60% students in computer science, 40% in engineering on the in the School of Science and Engineering. In School of Arts, Humanities and Social Science, it's 50-50 among the two original majors, which were social development and policy and communication and design. And now comparative humanities is introduced, so we're hoping that it will be one-third, one-third, one-third because there's a lot of curiosity to pursue that, and especially among students who become academic-minded and want to go on to grad schools. And And 56% female and... 44% 44% male students.
0: Great. And and a couple of other elements that tend to be fairly core to the liberal arts model in the U.S. One is a heavy emphasis on extra and co-curriculars, including athletics. And the other is is the residential experience, the idea that students' learning is not just in the classroom, but in the whole whole of their time together. How are those featured in, in the Habib model?
1: So I am actually very critical of now the, the athletic aspect of, because I think it has become too structured and too alienating. There's no joy of play that I see on any, any campus, right. So it's just as everything is so, again, is it's, it's a bit of a analogous to um, maybe overly structured, overly resource heavy. Uh, but that's a that's an aside. Uh, so we do have, we don't have a requirement, but there's a very uh, robust health and wellness program, uh, which our female students almost universally subscribe to, more so than the male, just because there's less opportunity for them outside of Habib University. Not having uh, on-campus domes is our only remaining soft underbelly. That's something that we are looking so extensively on to find the the land and to build it. Uh, When we started the campus, because we wanted to start it, um, so we, we settled for a commuting campus in the middle of Karachi, which is a city of about 30 million people. So it's a it's a medium sized country in its own right. So we thought that it is it is it is fine. You know, it's we will have enough diversity of students and so on, but not having them on campus and not gelling more, gelling even more as a community, especially when they have taken so much interest in arts and and music and performance and so on is a disadvantage. And that's something hopefully in the next few years we should be able to focus on and overcome obviously you
0: you had the the most significant gift ever in higher education philanthropy in Pakistan fifty million dollars to to found it, but even these days, right fifty million to build a campus and support the students it it only goes so far right so 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 how did you use that original gift in terms of the cost to construct the campus and create an endowment to support the the, the students and and can you say a little more about the operating model? How you're able, which is a very difficult challenge, right? To be need need blind, um, right right from the start with with serving so many high need talented students.
1: So what we did was that we um, used the the gift obviously to to build the campus, and then when we started finding people who were very interested in creating a legacy, so we did not ha- have to use that money to build anything because everything was built already. So, so that money would automatically go into endowment, right? So, so we never raised, we never had any kind of capital campaign because the capital is underwritten by, by the, 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 the major sponsor, but then we can uh, put a legacy on it for a multiple. So, so, it's win-win. Um, the other thing in Pakistan is that annual giving is is a very robust, uh, has a very robust presence in Pakistan, in Karachi especially. Uh, people are charitable. There are religious reasons for them to give every year. Uh, and we are very heavily featured in that particular space. So we raise roughly about $5 million every year from non-Habib sources. Um, and... That and when and Habib's have committed to contribute into that deficit anyway till 2030 or even beyond. But if we are raising so much that we don't have to use Habib's money, so that that differential keeps on adding to our endowment as well. Um, and then we have multiple. We have about eight products. Uh, three of them are recurring funding, and five of them are endowment strategic funding. That we are continuously, our team is ensuring that we have uh, possible donors who are are giving it to. So right now, our financial model is that about 30% is, let's say we use Habib's contribution, 30% or more we raise our own non-Habib charity. About 20% come from students, And about 10-15% we we take from endowment drawdown. We can take more, but we take very little, so it keeps on plowing back. So we've already raised an endowment of close to about $35 million. Once we get to $100 million, which, which everything, you know, a shock like COVID or 2008 notwithstanding, I think we should be able to do it in the next five years.
0: And, and what is the size of the student body currently?
1: So student body steady state will be about eleven hundred. We are we are, we have about a thousand students right now. Mm-hmm. And, and, and and as you and, and will... about hundred faculty members. Okay,
0: great. Um one thing you you didn't discuss at all in in putting all this together in, in in a very ambitious timeline was was your founding team who
1: who did you recruit to help lead the university with you? So that is actually was the is the biggest hidden challenge right So no one in Pakistan wakes up with a wish that they will start a career in a university <laughs> which is not a faculty career right? So it's it's hard. So we have to then compete with the overall market. When, when you, you're creating a tech team or a marketing team or so on, so they, they can find jobs elsewhere. Um, but I was fortunate um, that we started off with a small team of about six, seven very key people that I had known from before, and they have remained. They, they led some of those seven areas that I talked about and then continued to evolve and they are at vice president positions now in, in the journey of last 10 years. Uh, and they learned, as I learned, um, that what is this about? In a way, it actually helped us because if we were to bring in very experienced R1 people, they had a very different idea of what university should, be look, should look like and would do. Or if we took experienced people from Pakistan, they had again very different ideas, um, again tainted by what was happening in Pakistan. So in a, in a very interesting way, it actually perhaps helped us more than hampered us. Um, but the key was that if I could have these this core group committed enough, and I have enough security that they won't leave or, or get tired or, or 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 lose their energy. And fortunately that didn't happen. And and uh, that's how we, we worked on it.
0: Great. And, and can you, you've mentioned already a couple of core partnerships you've had with the Stanford Design School, with Harvey Mudd. Can you say what, what role, other roles, partnerships have played in your sort of evolving model?
1: Crucial role, like right? academic leadership role. So, so uh, actually whole Claremont Consortium, more so, Pitzer and 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 um, Harvey Mudd, but others as well. Uh, they have helped us in all sorts of curriculum design workshops. So they have worked with our faculty and shared their experiences and and so on. They offered to to come to Karachi many times and do workshops here, do model courses, and and etc. Our faculty has been to these places and have taught there for for a semester or two to get a hang of, especially in these high-end American academic environments. They sit on our promotion boards, uh, faculty promotion. We wanted Habib to be a career place, so almost our entire review committee is formed by the faculty members of these institutions. Um, They offer, we have student exchange with, uh, not only with With these, but with UC Berkeley as well as with University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, um, uh, because these are large universities and they have very well-designed exchange programs. Um, We have hosted um, uh, talks, um, uh, advocacy, uh, founded advocacy platforms to recruit faculty via these institutions. Uh, to get the word out and got got a lot of applications. So the entire, let's say, 360 of academic affairs help that one can think of has been forthcoming from from these places. And they, in turn, they see our model as very unique, especially with this student-centeredness, um, bringing the credentialing of teaching and creating a great course back. They're looking at it curiously, trying to to replicate some of those things. Design thinking, how it is especially shaping in liberal arts classrooms, not only in engineering. So those are things which interest them. Of course, the region interests them. That if they're, they have a faculty member who has something to do in this region, they know that there's a, there's a good host institution that they can send it.
0: Can you say a little more? One of the things you shared in the initial diagnosis you were trying to address with Habib was the the absence of um, the the disc engagement and discourse with some of the the major challenges that Pakistan faces as as a as a newer nation. Um, I think you've made a conscious effort through public intellectuals, others, to make that a core part of Habib. I'm curious how that has evolved. Has it created any tensions for you with the government? Have you been left relatively uh, independent and on your own?
1: So a bit of both. So our formula was to become so good that anyone who aims to create a tension with us becomes a client themselves. Right, so so they'll have their children or grandchildren as Habib students, which has worked partially, um, but it has created tensions here and there. You know, Pakistan is a very insecure security state. Um, so so you have these, especially being in Karachi, which is a sort of southern tip, rowdy southern tip of the country, and not in the middle of Punjab, where it would have been looked. A little bit more favorably. Um, uh, so I think that we have faced issues. We have uh, faced certain friendly, let's say, advices that why don't you do this and not do this. Uh, we have had few visas declined. Um, so, but nothing, to be honest, nothing that that we did not anticipate or, or something that would cause major concern. because the bottom line is that the, the service of our mission is undeniable and the quality now, the way it is emerging, especially in shape of our graduates is undeniable. And as I said, that many of these forces are clients themselves. So so they, they want to have their kids come to Habib University. So the quality itself is a defense mechanism. So I think Those are the things that we are navigating. Uh, The other thing that we have done is that because of this completely accessible model, it has influenced some of the older universities already. And they are trying to emulate and and they want to talk about it. That has been acknowledged in Pakistan that we have a, a good influence on higher education by pushing some of the private universities that have existed long before us to to become more generous. So I think that is another positive discourse or narrative that helps us. The one thing which is relatable for everyone is uh, the support and scholarship that students get. And I think if, if that's happening and if, if the education is demonstrably good and their students are successful, alumni are successful, I think some of these concerns or, or, or some of these aspects are addressed. Um, the other thing, which in a very warped way, I wish that I, I we didn't have to see it, has helped us, is the the bizarre political turn to absolute quasi-fascism in India, and so many academics were willing to talk about it, and that's an important conversation. So I think that sort of you know uh, anything about India, because Pakistani security apparatus has such obsession about them that that, in a way, pleases them. So I think that's... A, I, I'm not sure how you're going to broadcast it, but that's an interesting anecdotal <laughs> insight that I have. <laughs> that there is a shodden fraud that they seem to have uh, because Pakistani army was was very insecure of being labeled as a very highly undemocratic force uh, neighboring the largest democracy, which is India. But now things have gone south so badly in India (laughs) that they they aren't looking that bad.
0: (laughs) I'd like to come, exciting thing for you is you now have your first several classes of graduates. Can you speak to what their outcomes have been? What have they done after finishing at Hub?
1: So uh, about 70% of them are in the job market. We track them very closely uh, and because we encourage them to compete with, for um, to go to best employers, most competitive employers, and, and a vast majority of them are. Uh, about 20-25% are already in grad schools or have already graduated. And their natural propensity is to apply to grad schools in the U.S. because the style of education that they have gone through has made them familiar. Many of them have had their exchange semesters there anyway. Um, So and about five, six percent are either entrepreneurial in their own right or uh, some who are not doing anything, um, you know, have are taking a break. Uh, You know, there's some health reason here and there. Some have gotten married. A couple of them already have kids. So I think that's the mix. But let's say about 90, 95 percent are either in in uh, pursuing a career or are in grad school. Great.
0: And and can you say a little about your your vision for the future? You you've touched on already the. Uh, desire to add a residential component if you can. What, what are some of the other top things you're, you're hoping to achieve building on the excellent foundation you already have? In place?
1: So our strategic plan highlights three things that we should be. So we need to consolidate the student success. So we need to be demonstrably uh, creating alumni who are um not only getting these jobs, but really progressing well uh, and are influencing their employers um, and clearly showing leadership potential. The second one is that we want to become a more and more desirable place for very high quality faculty um, to to come either as visiting or or ladder faculty, because we are really defining a scholarly agenda, which is very relevant to us. There are large gaps in the content, in the work that should have been done for the region and, and the challenges and so on, and the insight both in humanities and in, on the on the science sides. Uh, there is there's very little work Pakistan has been looked at. Unlike India or China, Pakistan is not really looked with academic curiosity. We are being looked at with political science and security curiosity. So not a lot of scholarly work. So that's one thing that we really want to focus on in the next five, six years. Uh, so residential bit sort of connects with that too because we want security to come and feel very welcome and and, and then do their thing. Um, and the third thing is sustainability, that we want to raise an endowment of about $100 million. So with ups and downs in annual funding, we'll be able to continue on our mission. Uh, So these would be the three things. And the support that is required for that is uh, uh, a lot of residential capacity. Uh, uh, Furthermore, let's say if I have energy or if my board is not too tired of me by then, uh, we have uh, 200 acres of land, uh, which is right right outside of Karachi, where we want to actually build a, a, a large residential campus and maybe make this one, uh, convert this one into grad schools, the one that we already have in, in the city. But that's So you're about, thinking about
0: the p- potential to add graduate programs into the mix as well?
1: If we address the, the scholarly gap, I think then it would be, what we'll, we'll start doing it with undergrad students, but I think it would be logical for them to continue on into expanding their, uh, their horizon with a grad program.
0: Can you say one of the things none of us knew we would be dealing with as when we signed on for these jobs was public health and a global pandemic? How has that played out for you as a very new institution in terms of your ability to
1: manage that? So so what helped was that we are a small institution. I think it would have been far more chaotic if, if we were larger in size. Um, so as a small institution, um, you know, what we did was that we looked at the risks that it posed. The biggest risk it posed was to students that they may not be able to continue. Um, so we had to make sure that that doesn't happen or it doesn't happen in any way. Then the other problem that it posed was that if faculty are equipped to to make that um, complete um, a massive transition from in-person to online. So we invested very heavily both in creating a friendly tech, tech environment as well as ensuring that our capacity is continuously built. What we were saved from was a, a, a really deadly aspect of the pandemic in Pakistan. So Pakistan was never hit with... With, with with a frightening wave like many in in the West or in in India or Brazil, um, so there was there were lockdowns and and off campus, but at least the the loss of life was 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 not um, as widespread. Um, so we we lost one or two members of our community. I think that that if it was bigger than that, that would have demoralized us a lot more. So fortunately, just by national circumstances, we were we were a little fortunate. Then in, in Karachi especially, there was a great spirit of wanting to help. So we reached out to a number of corporates, uh, corporate, citizen, corporate companies and shared this issue of digital divide. About 80% of our students were struggling with not having the right technology at home to be able to participate. And we created COVID specific uh, support programs where people gave us hundred uh, percent, whatever we were requiring help. So we bought computers, we bought internet connections. In certain cases, we bought um, electric, elect, uh, electricity backups because there was a big power outage problem that was happening. So I think that, con- con- uh, and then we did not lay off anybody, didn't reduce anyone's compensation So all of that combined gave a very positive signal that Habib University is helpful and is supportive. We obviously couldn't keep all of our faculty happy because we requested, required them, because we couldn't hire any more. So we required them to teach a little bit more than usual, which created grumbles here and there. But I think generally as a country and especially as a city, I think we were spared the worst of it it has created however a massive disruption to any kind of international activity so we're not interacting the way we used to and and obviously students are not traveling and and we're not welcoming any visitor either so that has been a continuous toll here and there that that the actual excitement of of uh, being on campus the other thing we discovered that we were not prepared at all for a high quality first year experience. We relied too much on uh, students coming on campus and forming themselves into a happy community. When that campus aspect was taken away, especially our freshmen were completely beleaguered. Uh, They didn't know they were not getting it. Uh, They had just come out of different high schools. They didn't know each other. So, So that pushed us to have now a very good freshman experience program after suffering a, the bigger than ever melt of the freshman class. Um, and I don't blame them. I think we were just not really, we, we took it for granted. Um, and then the other thing that if we were to make logistical arrangement, who to prioritize, who should come on campus, who, who can be deferred a little, so all those things. But I think that I am very empathetic of the challenges in the U S where it's such a massive loss of life, and it seems to be ongoing. Yeah. So I think looking at what's happening in the U.S., I think you know we we consider ourselves to be somewhat fortunate.
0: Well, it sounds like you have coped very well in the conditions. I, I wanted to wind up by just asking you to reflect any any lessons that that you've drawn for for others who might think about the idea of cre- creating a whole new college or university. Um, uh, advice you would give in terms of, of, of how best to approach that?
1: I think the central advice would be to view um, potential students as a legitimate intellectual asset and, and not just an audience for whatever university is going to do. I think that has con- been the, the baseline engine of our culture and our mission. Uh, that pushes us to invest in them. That pushes us to find resources for them because we think that undergrad students are as much an intellectual asset as one would look at grad, grad students, uh, especially in this day and age when they come in with you know much more informed, much more skilled than perhaps they were 30 years ago. Because of the circumstances that they are exposed to, so that would be my perhaps uh, the most key advice. It will influence the whole whole scope of of the plan and and approach.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and sharing sharing the lessons you've you've drawn. <laughs>
1: thank you.